on the, the podcast, This American Life, a few weeks ago, uh, heard this woman tell a story about her favorite movie of all time, when she was a little girl, at least, was The Sound of Music. Raise your hand if you've ever seen The Sound of Music. Okay. Yeah, very popular, right? So, you know how little kids can watch the same movie over and over and over again? It used to drive me crazy when my kids were little. Uh, I, I never want to see Bambi again after my daughter watched it like 19,000 times. But So, when this girl was six or seven years old, that was the sound of music for her. She just watched it over and over again. So now she's in her 40s, and in this podcast she's talking about recently, she was talking to a friend, and the friend uh, said, so you liked The Sound of Music when you were a little girl, like first and second grade? She said, yeah. She goes, didn't the Nazis in that movie scare you? And the woman said, what Nazis? I don't remember Nazis in that movie. She said, yeah, there's, there's Nazis in it. No, there's not. She said, okay, it's, it's, it's Maria. And she goes to live with this family with all these kids, no mom, and, and a dad who's mean and nasty. And, and the oldest daughter uh, falls in love with this cute little mailman named Rolf. And he comes over and he sings this song to her and they dance together. And it's just this beautiful movie about love, right? She goes, oh, I think you're missing some parts. So she went around and asked other friends, are there Nazis in The Sound of Music? And they all said, yeah, yeah of course there are. Where have you been? So she decides to try to figure out what, how she missed this. I mean, I, she realizes I was, a, I was a little girl, but surely I would have noticed these evil people. And so she goes back to her parents' old house. And guys, some of you are, are too young to remember the days of VHS, right? But that's what the movie was on. It was on a VHS cassette. And she finds the old copy, and it turns out it was such a long movie, they had to put it on two VHS cassettes, right? And she had only watched the first one. She realized she was missing the whole back half of the movie. So there, here in, in her 40s, she sits down and for the first time watches the whole movie from end to end. And she is shocked and horrified to learn a couple of things. First of all, not only are there Nazis in The Sound of Music, but spoiler alert, Rolf is one of them, right? And he's not a cute little mailman. He's, he's actually a messenger boy for the Nazis. And, and as if that is not bad enough, Sweet Maria falls in love with the mean, nasty dad and becomes Mrs. Von Trapp, horror of horrors. And so the whole movie is different than what she thought it was. And I think that's the way a lot of Christians are towards the Bible. I've known a lot of Christians who think they know what the scriptures teach, at least the broad outlines. They would never claim to be theologians or Bible scholars, and they will gladly admit, I don't read the Bible like I should. And I've never actually read the whole thing cover to cover, but, but I know the basic storyline. I know the main characters. I know the, the gist of the teachings. And I've seen these Christians, and they, they get to be in middle age, and they realize, okay, I, I should probably read this thing. And they're shocked at how much stuff there is in Scripture that they've never heard of. And personally, as a, as a pastor, I take that personally and realize if pastors did a better job, then Christians would know more of the Scriptures and they would be more challenged to read them for themselves. So that's a downfall on my part, on our part. But I think this is especially true when it comes to biblical teaching about wealth, about possessions, about finances and money. Uh, when you hear, when you go to some churches, you get the impression that that Jesus' teachings on money were pretty similar to uh, what Bill Gates might write or Elon Musk might write when he talks about how to get rich. And there are teachings in the Bible that have to do with hard work, with, with money management, but a lot of those are common sense. You don't have to be a Christian to believe in those. A lot of times I, I feel like we as American Christians get the teachings of the Bible on wealth mixed up with the American dream. 
So the American dream is that anybody, if they work hard enough and their discipline can go from, from poor to rich, from outhouse to penthouse. And it's true to a certain extent. I mean, our country is very, very blessed with affluence and opportunity and freedom. There's a reason why people keep trying to move here. So if, if, if you're good at something that pays well and you manage your money well, and you get some good breaks, so you don't have any major medical problems, you don't go through any financial downturns, you know the right people. Yes, you can really rise up from the slums to uh, a mansion in this country, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The American dream is great, but it's not biblical. What does Jesus actually say about money? Because he talked about money and possessions quite a lot. But it wasn't how to get rich. It wasn't how to improve yourself financially. His message was something very different. And that's what I'm going to be talking to you over the next four weeks. You can really gel his message about possessions, about stuff, down to two main themes. And we're going to look at the first theme today. And the rest of the series is going to be about the other one. But today, because uh, I, I just want to get us kicked off and on the right direction, I want to cover four different passages, like I said at the beginning, and the first one is right here in Luke 12, 16 through 21. These are four foundational teachings of Jesus on this subject of possessions. Luke 12, 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a certain rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, the first thing I want you to see in this, and this is just for interest's sake, this is the only parable Jesus ever told in which God himself is a character. But the main thing I want you to see is this man, and this, this parable is often called the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool. So the rich fool in the story, he does things that you and I would consider wise, we consider smart. He, he, he works hard. He puts his money up. He, he saves what he's gained. And God calls him a fool. But Why? He's not condemning hard work and saving because the book of Proverbs praises those things, extols those things. He's not, he's not calling him a fool because he built barns. That, again, is wisdom. He's not calling him a fool because he did well. As the story says, the land of a certain man produced plentifully. It wasn't even his intention. It's just he got a bumper crop. There's nothing inherently sinful about living in a place or a time or, or an era in which there's affluence and you do well financially. That doesn't make you either better or worse in the eyes of God. So why does God call him a fool? And, and in this case, in a lot of cases, it's important to know the context. So if you don't, know any, you don't hear anything else from this sermon, listen to this part. Don't pick out a story or a teaching or a, or a verse of Scripture and just say, okay, now I know what that means. Know what comes before it and after it. Know when it was spoken, who to whom it was spoken. Jesus is talking to a young man who has just come to him and said, teacher, divide the inheritance with me. I, I'm sorry, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So he's trying to get Jesus, the Son of God, involved in his family dispute with his brother. Probably what happened was, in that culture, it was traditional that when the father died, the eldest son got most of the estate. 
and then he administered it to everybody else. As the oldest child in my family, I think that's a good idea. Too bad we don't do it anymore. This guy's coming to Jesus saying, I don't think that's fair. I don't trust him to administer it to me fairly, so tell him to give me my share. And Jesus' answer is, okay, number one, I'm not getting involved in your family dispute. This is not what I came for. Number two, as he says in verse 15 of Luke, Luke 12, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus right there on the spot diagnoses this guy's heart and says, you're caught up in greed and you need to watch out because it will lead you to destruction. And then he tells the story of the rich fool. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that if you base your self-worth on your wealth, that is going to lead to spiritual suicide. He's saying, if you think you can't be happy unless you have this better car, this nicer house, be able to dress in these clothes, be able to take vacations no longer in a Motel 6, but in um, some swanky Airbnb somewhere. If you think that's what is required in order for me to be happy, in order for me to have a meaningful life, then you are headed down a road to destruction. In fact, your life will end in misery even if you get all the things you're driving for. Context is key. So the second teaching, Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some of you still read out of the King James Version, and you might notice that it says God and mammon. That's actually a literal translation of what Jesus said. Because Jesus, in that moment, uh, gave money a proper name. It's the Aramaic word mammon. And it's a proper name. It's sort of like the way we call the U.S. government Uncle Sam. Nobody really thinks there's an actual person out there with a stars and stripes top hat and a long white beard. They're saying, okay, the government, when they say Uncle Sam. In the same way, Jesus is picturing money as a personal figure, as an alternate God. Now, why does he do this? There's nowhere, nowhere that I know of there are statues to mammon. Jesus is saying, you're, you're not aware of this, but right now your true God is mammon. Your true God is wealth. Your true God is the quest for more. Now, how do you know if you're worshiping mammon instead of God? Well, what, what brings you worth, self-worth, identity? What makes you feel secure? What inhabits your daydreams? What do you most fear losing? See, if it's anything other than God, then that's your true God. And, and what a lot of Christians do is they'll say, oh, no, no, I'm fine. God and money work hand in hand for me. Uh, because I worship God, I'm, I'm, I'm gaining more. Because of the way American preaching so often is, it's this idea that if I'm faithful, then God's going to bless me with more. I'm going to have more abundance, more resources, more wealth. And what, I, what it really comes down to is there's a lot of a lot of versions of Christianity in America that are really asking Yahweh to help you serve mammon instead of the other way around. And that's what Jesus is warning us against. There's this guy, uh, Robert Hansen. You probably don't recognize that name, uh, but he was famous or infamous back in the 1990s. He was an FBI agent, served our country. Um, he was known to his neighbors and his friends for being very extravagant in how he loved his wife. 
He was, he was the kind of guy who uh, just showered his wife with gifts, who took her out to eat, who just loved to buy her things. It was the kind of husband that if they were just walking through a store and she stopped and kind of lingered for a moment over a, a particular dress or a particular pair of shoes or a, or, a, or a necklace or some other item of jewelry, pretty soon it would be in a wrapped box in her house. He had brought it home to her. And I guarantee you, Mrs. Hansen's female friends probably all said, man, I wish my husband was more like Robert." It turns out the reason that a man on an FBI agent's salary could afford such lavish gifts for his wife is he was selling something, and it wasn't drugs, and it wasn't weapons. It was his country. Robert Hansen, as it turns out, was one of the most notorious spies in American history. He was a double agent, essentially. He was selling information to the Soviet Union in the waning days of that regime, information that got actual people killed because Russia hasn't really changed much in 40 years. Robert Hansen was caught and spent the rest of his life in jail. You can't serve your country and your country's enemy at the same time. You have to choose. The same way you cannot, you cannot serve God for the purposes of getting mammon. That's idolatry by any other name. You have to choose. You have to choose one or the other. The third story, the third teaching is found in Revelation 3, 17 through 20. You might be aware of this, but the book of Revelation opens with seven letters to seven actual churches that existed in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. These are letters dictated by Jesus from heaven to the Apostle John through a vision. Can you imagine if I, if I showed up next Sunday and said, hey, I have in my hand a letter from Jesus to First Baptist Conroe. You all would be interested to hear what it said. Well, this is, a, this is part of a letter to a church in a city called Laodicea. Verse 17 of Revelation 3, Jesus writes, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Laodicea, where this church was located, was a wealthy city. It was so wealthy, in fact, that at one point, the city itself was leveled by, a, by an earthquake. And when the Roman government wanted to rebuild the city, the people of Laodicea said, we don't need any of your government help. We can rebuild it ourselves. Can you imagine a city doing that now? Now, why were they so wealthy? There were three resources they had. There was a center of banking in that region, and so they had lots of gold stored in their banks. It was also a place where a particular breed of sheep grew this very glossy black wool. They were able to make these garments that sold for a lot of money. They also had a, a famous medical school in that city that created this, this substance called Phrygian powder that was used in a salve that healed eye ailments. And notice that Jesus mentions all those sources of wealth in his letter. You think you're rich, but you're actually dirt poor. 
You think you have these beautiful garments, but you're actually as naked as the day you were born, walking around shaming yourself. You think you can see, but you're actually blind as a bat. I can give you vision. I can enable you to see things as they truly are. I can give you the wealth that never goes away. I can clothe you in my righteousness so your shame will be gone. Remember, he's speaking not to lost people. He's speaking not to non-Christians. He's speaking to a church. And that's why when we get to verse 20, that famous verse, so often taken out of context, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I remember when I was a, a young adult and I was taught how to share my faith. And that was one of the verses we were told to use. Talk to non-Christians and say, don't you hear Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart? Won't you let him in? But that's not what this verse is about. Jesus here isn't talking to an individual. He's talking to a church. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to a church full of professing believers. Imagine that letter that I bring home from Jesus to First Baptist Conroe says, I'm outside, outside your fancy atrium, knocking, banging with all my heart, and no one's letting me in. Y'all are in there preaching your sermons and praying your prayers and singing your songs, but I'm not even invited you might say, how can that be? How can that happen? For the Laodiceans, their wealth was the loud music that distracted them from the voice of God. They didn't miss him because they looked around and said, well, look at all this stuff. Look at all we have. What more do we need? And Jesus goes, me, you need me. How come I'm not part of that? What, a, what an indictment of a church. And friends, that can happen here. Make no mistake, it can happen here. When mammon takes over, when mammon takes over, Jesus is out the door. Now, the last teaching we're going to spend the rest of our time with it starts with Mark 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is one of the more famous stories in the scriptures, one of the saddest stories in the scriptures. We call it the, the parable or the story of the rich young ruler um, because another one of the gospels refers to him that way as a ruler of people. But there's three things I think people miss. And the first is the man who comes to Jesus in this story is obviously very religious and very moral because when he says to Jesus, I've kept all these commandments from my youth, Jesus doesn't correct him and say, you're, you're lying. Jesus saw his heart and saw that he had been very diligent, very conspicuous in his religiosity and his morality. Secondly, secondly, Jesus here isn't saying that, oh, well, you're just too rich. I can't accept you because you have too much. There's nowhere in the Bible that says how much, how rich is too rich, right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, okay, you've got too much at this point. Nowhere are we given any means for legalistically judging someone else's possessions. It's all about what's going on in our heart. And by the way, Jesus never made this demand of anyone else. You can't earn your way into heaven by giving to charity or by helping the poor. That's not something you do to make God love you. 
but it's something you should do because he does. The third thing about this story is Jesus wasn't trying to drive this man away, and he wasn't setting up a test for him. I think a lot of people read this story in that way to say, well, Jesus is testing him to see if he's worthy of heaven. No. It specifically says Jesus said this because he loved him. Jesus, in what he said, the demand he placed before this guy was motivated by love for this person. He looked into his heart. He saw the one thing this man was missing. He said, I can give you that one thing, but you've got to get rid of this stuff that's in the way. And the man wouldn't have it. The one thing he was missing cost him too much because his true God was mammon and he couldn't say no. So let's sum up before we continue with this story. Let's sum up what we've learned so far. In Jesus' teachings about possessions, he's never trying to show us how to increase. He's not criticizing us when we do. But his teachings are not about how to go from, from this point to this point financially. He's consistently instead warning us. Money is a trap. Wealth is a trap. Watch out for it. It is dangerous. And I know, I know, even though I'm not a mind reader, I know what some of you are thinking. Boy, I sure would like to fall into that trap. I think that's a sign of how deeply we're caught up in, in, in our American way of thinking, the, the way of thinking that says the, the best thing that can possibly happen is for you to reach a certain level of wealth. That's the dream. That's the goal. That's what we should all strive for. And we don't take seriously the word of God that says, watch out. I remember hearing uh, about a, a preacher who was in deacons meeting and the deacons were all gathered around and, and one comes in and goes, I'm sorry, I'm late guys, but I just heard from one of our church members that uh, some rich uncle died and now he's inherited a fortune. Now he's a millionaire. And the pastor said, well, let's all pray for him right now. We all go, what? Said, Man, he's never been in more danger than right now. So the story goes on in Mark 10, 23 through 27. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now why would the disciples think, well, if rich people can't get in, then who can be saved? Because in their belief system, if someone was wealthy, that was a sign of God's favor, and God wouldn't favor someone who wasn't righteous. So if, in their view, the righteous people, the ones who were blessed by God, couldn't get in, then certainly they had no hope. And Jesus is, is sharing with them, you're looking at it all wrong. Yes, there are wealthy people who get in because God can save anyone. There are Joseph of Arimathea's and there are Lydia. Later on, we meet her in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. There, there's Barnabas who had enough money to give away family land so he can contribute to the, to the offerings of the saints. So, so Jesus isn't saying that if you're rich, you can't get in. He's simply saying, you're looking at this completely wrong. Now, he's also saying that the good life is not measured in dollars and cents. That the best thing in life really is free. It came because Jesus died for us. 
It's free because he paid the highest of possible costs. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says that he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus gave up everything so we could have true wealth. That's, that's the wealth that lasts. That's the best thing in life. See, as Americans, we need to recognize we're in greater danger than the people Jesus was talking to. You realize most of the people Jesus was saying these hard lessons to were people who were so poor, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't know who was going to feed their kids tomorrow. I guarantee you the poorest person in this room has enough food in their house to eat for the next week at least. By the standards of, of the people Jesus was speaking to, we are all fabulously wealthy. And we live in a culture that exalts mammon to such an extent that you could be absolutely addicted to it. You could be a slave to money. You could be a, a full-on worshiper of mammon and feel completely comfortable in any American church because we would look at you and say, you're obviously doing well. Look at the house you live in. Look at the car you drive. Look at the way your kids dress. Look at the vacations you take. Obviously, you're doing well. I should be more like you. So we can be on the road to destruction and no one will ever warn us because we just look and see he's living the good life. Ain't God good. And God's up there saying, I'm still knocking and you're not opening because you're listening to the voice of mammon. So how do we escape that trap? Robert Hansen did things that he never thought possible. I, I would guarantee you he went into the FBI because he wanted to serve his nation, ended up selling his nation instead. That's the call of mammon. Church, let me just say this, and you probably never thought you'd hear a pastor say this, going to church on its own is not enough. I want you here. I want you here on Sundays. God has commanded us to be together in his name, but just going to church is not enough to rescue you from the trap of mammon. Robert Hansen went to mass every morning at 6.30 a.m. Every morning. And it didn't protect him. There's no magical prayer I can give you, no religious ritual that will uh, inoculate you against the temptations of mammon. But look at how Jesus finishes this story. Mark 10, 28 through 30. Peter began to say, him, say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And what Peter is saying is, Lord, we did what you've commanded this rich young man to do. We walked away from our jobs. We left behind our homes, everything we'd built just to follow you. And we've been living on the ground. We've been eating what we could scrounge. We've been living off the charity of others. Is there going to be anything for us? Here's what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There's a lot in that that I'd like to unpack, but I don't have time, including the fact that Jesus promises us not just blessing, but persecution. I don't ever hear preachers preach that sermon. And also the idea that, that there are some uh, prosperity gospel type preachers who like to make this into a mathematical formula and say, well, Jesus said it would be hundredfold. So if you give my ministry $100, you'll get back 10,000. You can count on it. It's funny, nobody ever says, if you give uh, two children to the church, you'll get back 200 kids. And nobody ever preaches that. Seems like God's math might be a little different, right? But what I want to point out to you is what Jesus is saying is, 
you'll never regret anything you give to me. In fact, on the contrary, I think on our judgment day, a whole lot of us are going to stand there going, why did I waste so much when I could have laid up treasure in heaven? Why did I, why did I take the more than ample resources God gave me and spend it on things that went away? I was like a kid who's going for a, a month-long trip to some tropical paradise and my mom gave me $100 and I spent it all in the airport. Why did I waste what I'd been given when I could have given it to what lasts, to what matters in this life, even more in the life to come? What it comes down to is, again, two themes. You, you can go, if you want to test me on this this week, I dare you. Read everything Jesus said about money. You'll hear two themes. Watch out for it. It's a trap. Number two, the key is generosity. It's more important what you give than what you gain. The generous person, whether they're rich or poor in the eyes of the world, and most of us are never going to give enough to get buildings named after us, uh, to, to start foundations. But the generous person is rich in the things that really count. Jesus was first among them. He left everything behind. He gave up everything for us. So here's my question for you to ponder over these next few weeks, are you willing to give whatever he asks of you? Is there anything you wouldn't give if he asked it? That's the good life.